Uh, we're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to our passage for today. Uh, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. I'll give you a second to turn there. May God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there are many challenges to the church today. If you visit a seminary, you will be warned that, that in our generation, there is a theological famine, and that what we truly need is to return to a study and a devotion and a knowledge of the word of God. Brothers and sisters, no doubt this is important. To study and know the word of God is absolutely crucial for us as the people of God. Or there's another challenge of the church in our community, the church in our culture. And today, society is critiquing the church. And most often times, it's negatively. Our culture thinks that the church is an institution full of hypocrites and bigots who are judgmental and divisive, whether it's on issues of sexuality or marriage or ethics, whatever it might be. They see us as hypocrites and bigots. Some of that may be warranted. We are still a church needing to be sanctified, needing to grow more like Christ. Certainly, we must take careful watch over our witness. We should do more to love our neighbor. We should be more passionate about justice and defending the weak. We should be more zealous in serving our communities. However, I believe that the greatest danger in our church today, it's not just because we don't know our Bibles well enough. It's not just a lack of knowledge. The greatest danger in our church today is not just poor or inadequate ethics. Rather, I believe that the greatest problem, the greatest issue for us in our generation is a misunderstanding of discipleship. It's a synthetic creation, a man-made version of what it means to follow Jesus. That's what I mean by synthetic, that we are all guilty of creating this man-made, watered-down version of discipleship that no longer reflects the truth of the gospel. And it's nothing more than a spiritual sugar pill that you and I take to make us feel better about ourselves. It's a spiritual sugar pill that we have crafted and created that fits conveniently into our lives. Brothers and sisters, understanding and heeding the call of Christ, this is the greatest need in our generation. This is the greatest need in our church. And it is the fountainhead of the Christian life. You see, from discipleship, from understanding that we are called to follow Christ and be his people. From that fountainhead flows passion for the word. From that fountainhead flows power 
in worship, and in prayer. From that fountainhead flows true love for God and for others. And so today we're going to look through this text, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20, and in it we have the call of Christ. And we're going to see three things. The arrival of the call. Second, the nature of the call. And thirdly, how do we respond to the call? Okay, three simple things. The arrival of the call, the nature of the call, and lastly, how must we respond to the call? In our passage today, we have the first words of Jesus recorded by Mark, okay? And so Mark is one of the four Gospels, and we know that some of the other Gospels have the the childhood stories of Jesus. They have the birth story of Jesus. They have the genealogy of Jesus, but Mark doesn't have those elements, He goes straight to Jesus as an adult, Jesus being baptized by John. And here we have in chapter one, the first words of Jesus recorded by Mark. Now we are a people, we all remember many of our firsts. You guys remember your first job and your first paycheck and how that felt, right? We never forget our first love and our first kiss. Uh, I have a confession, as much as I wish that my first kiss was On the altar, it wasn't. But I will say this. My first kiss was so bad and awkward that afterwards, I just couldn't even look my girlfriend in the eye. I just immediately hugged her, and I said, I'm sorry. (laughs) That was so bad. I'm sorry. But I'll never forget it. It was my first kiss, and I had to apologize for it. Parents, they fawn over the first words of their child. They're so desperate, and they, they hope to capture their children's first steps. The, the phones are ready, right? And they're, they're, they're on video capture mode. We are a people who remember our firsts, and we should never forget Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. John the Baptist has just been arrested. And Mark tells us that as John's ministry is coming to an earthly end, Jesus is beginning his. And the ministry of Jesus is not just a continuation of what John was doing. Jesus isn't just picking up where John left off. Rather, Jesus is fulfilling the ministry of John. You see, what was John called to do? He was called to prepare the way, right? Prepare the way to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, that the Messiah is coming, that the kingdom of God is coming. And so what we must do is repent. That was John's ministry. But now we see that, John, that Jesus calls us to repent and believe, not because the kingdom is coming, but because the kingdom has come. Because the kingdom has come. It is at hand. How could this be? Because to the Jews, it didn't seem like the kingdom had come. Politically, Israel was still under Roman rule. And Israel had this sinful puppet king by the name of Herod who was sitting on their throne. And so they didn't see the kingdom of God, the reign of someone like King David being established in their nation. They didn't see that. So it didn't look like the kingdom had come. Spiritually, there was no major revival or renewal breaking out in all of Israel. Israel was still guilty of idolatry caught up in sin, with hardened and calloused hearts. And finally, there was still sin and death plaguing the world. So many would ask, how? How has the kingdom come? 
How is it at hand? The answer is this. The kingdom has come because Jesus, the true king, has come. Jesus, the king of kings and Lord of lords, in his incarnation, in the beginning of his ministry, he has brought his kingdom with him. Such is the nature of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, it is not just theocentric. And theocentric means God-centered. The kingdom of God is not merely God-centered. It is Christocentric. It is Christ-centered. And so as Christ the King has arrived, the kingdom of God has arrived as well. We see also that the kingdom is something that has been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. Okay, Jesus brought it, he's establishing it, but it is not finalized. It is not perfected. This is what the theologians call the already but not yet nature of the kingdom. In Christ, the king has come. By his work and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can experience his reign and his presence in our lives. That's an amazing reality and opportunity for us. But we are all awaiting the ultimate consummation of the kingdom when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. When Jesus will return to establish a new heavens and a new earth. And that's when we will see the consummation, the finality of the kingdom. This is the not yet. So the kingdom is already, but not yet. And with the arrival of the king, we have the arrival of the call. Jesus declares, because the kingdom has come, therefore we are called to repent and believe in the gospel. What does it mean to repent? Simply this, that we turn. To repent is an active word. To repent requires obedience. To repent requires realization, confession, contrition, and commitment to turn away from our sins, to turn away from our pride, our worldliness, and idolatry. And what does it mean for us to believe? It means for us to place our faith, to place our trust, to place our entire dependence on Jesus and the gospel. Okay, repent is a negative word, calls us to turn. To believe is a positive word, right? And it's to look to and trust in Jesus and the gospel. This is the call of Christ, to turn away from sin and turn towards Jesus. This is the call of Christ, to break our allegiance to the kingdom of this world and align our allegiance, our lives, our passions, our joy, our worship, and our devotion to the kingdom of God. And the way we do this is not by purchase, bargain, or negotiation. It's by repentance and faith. How do you and I enter the kingdom of God? How do you and I receive the kingdom of God that Jesus has brought? It is through repentance and faith. And immediately after, we have Jesus' first words. We have Jesus' call of the first disciples, right? These are a series of important firsts that Mark is setting up for us. Let's go back to the text. Let's start with verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, and Simon here is Peter. So uh, we, you might have been familiar growing up that his name was Simon Peter, right? Peter is the, the kind of like Greek version. So Simon, Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And if you notice, the the cost and the call is now increasing here, right? Peter and Andrew, they left their jobs, right? They left their nets and followed Jesus. 
But James and John, they're in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat, right? In the boat. That is not a typo. I believe that that actually happened. They left their father in the boat with his hired servants, with their hired servants, and followed Jesus. Do you see how Mark's gospel is truly a gospel of action? And to demonstrate this, Mark loves to use the word immediately, right? Immediately, they drop their nets and follow them. Immediately, Jesus calls out. The disciples respond and, and follow, not with hesitation, right? Not with this Q&A session, not with this, hey, give me a little bit of time to kind of like chew on that. They respond immediately. And although Mark moves through these events with this like breakneck speed, this morning we need to pause. We need to reflect upon Jesus's encounter with these first disciples. Let me make uh, actually uh, four brief observations, not brief actually, uh, I lied. Uh, four observations regarding Jesus's call to his first disciples. First, we need to realize Jesus is the one who issues the call. And this was actually really radical in Jesus's day, okay? We think that that's normal because that's what we've grown up with, right? Jesus calls us, but this was actually very radical to the culture of the Jews. In their culture, the young men would seek out the rabbis. The men would devote themselves to training and then they would enter into schools. In the same way, parents, you sign your kids up for Korean school or you sign your kids up for karate or taekwondo and, and all these activities. That was the same thing going on. They would look for the greatest teachers. They would look for the most skilled tradesmen. They would look for the best schools, and then they would try to get in. They would look for mentors. They would look for jobs in the same way we do today. But here in this passage, we see that Jesus goes out, and he seeks his disciples. He goes out by the sea. He goes out, and he initiates, and he speaks in church. This is a great reminder that this call to discipleship, even though we are called to turn, turn away from everything in this world and be willing to leave everything behind, and it feels weighty for us, and it feels costly for us, that this call is a call of sheer grace, and it shows us the heart of God. You see, these men, they had done nothing to merit the call. They had done nothing to deserve the call. They had no qualifications that made them ideal disciples. They are just working fishermen. Mark tells us nothing about their worship life, their prayer life, their holiness, their zeal, their knowledge of the word, nothing. Jesus initiates, he calls. This call is sheer grace, sheer grace. And we remember that our God is a God who loves us so much. He sent his only son, that Jesus is truly a savior who seeks and saves the lost. This is the call to discipleship. This is a grace extended to us. Second thing we need to see is that the call is to a person, okay? Jesus was not just calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John to believe in something new. He's not just calling them to believe in a new idea, a new teaching, and a new ethic, and a new lifestyle. No, he was calling them unto himself. Follow me. The call to discipleship is not just a call to a religion and just Christianity in general. It is a call to a person. It is immensely personal. And brothers and sisters, we have forgotten this truth. We have. 
We are so occupied with trying to live a Christian life. We're so occupied with trying to do Christian and church-related things. We're trying hard to just even do devotions, like you know the exercises of prayer and reading the Bible. We've forgotten the personal nature of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the great German Lutheran theologian, he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's one of the most formative books I've ever read in my life. I'm going to quote him several times today. Uh, This is the first thing I want to share from him. This is what he says. When we are called to follow Christ, we are summoned to an exclusive attachment to his person. When we see discipleship as an abstract Christology or a, a doctrine of religious knowledge, we render discipleship superfluous, right? unnecessary, or as the millennials will say, extra. Right? With an abstract idea, it is possible to enter into a relation of formal knowledge, to become enthusiastic about it, and perhaps even put it into practice, but it can never be followed in personal obedience. Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. In such a religion, there is trust in God, but no following Christ. How many of us are guilty of trusting in God, trusting in God with our jobs, our relationships, our families, our finances, with our health, with our education. We say, yeah, I trust in God. I know God's in control. And yet there is no personal relationship with Jesus. How do you know whether or not you have a personal relationship in Jesus, with Jesus, genuine faith in these important matters in life? Here's the question. Do you talk to Jesus about him, these matters? Do you pray? Do you seek his wisdom and his counsel? Do you live out these areas of your life in obedience to him? That is a personal relationship and then demonstrating trust. The problem with us is we do none of those things. We live our own lives according to our own preferences on our own behaviors. And then we just stamp God on it and say, and I trust God's gonna take care of it. Doesn't that sound like us in our lives? Right? That's our decision-making. I make my own decisions And then I just say, yeah, and God is sovereign, so he's going to take care of it. That has nothing to do with discipleship. That has nothing to do with discipleship. These are sobering and powerful words. Jesus is not just some idea or some ethic. He is not merely the sum of his teachings. He is a person who has invited us to know him. He has invited us to follow him and be his disciples. You know how powerful personal relationships are? I mean, it's, it's the only way we get things done at church, right? It, it just is. R- really funny thing is, I know Pastor DC, he's like, hey, sign up for it on Eventbrite. Go to our website, right, and click on it. That just doesn't get you guys going. You won't click, right? You just won't. You'll say, oh yeah, I want to go out to that, You know what helps and really reinforces and almost burdens you to sign up for things and attend things, whether it's a a leadership training seminar or a baptism class or membership or whatever it might be? It's when somebody comes up to you and says, will you come to this? Will you help? Will you volunteer? Can you attend? And suddenly, I mean, it's easy when it's like an announcement or something on a screen or like it's an abstract idea. But when somebody comes up to you and says, will you help? Will you attend? Will you serve? Suddenly, it got real personal, right? 
And you either have to make an intentional decision and say no, or you'll say yes. But that's the power of a personal relationship. What if your life was lived like that before Christ? Where you truly understand that Jesus is speaking to us all the time. He's inviting us to experience his kingly reign in our lives. He's calling us to follow and obey him. And in those moments, we will either obey a person or disregard a person. That makes discipleship so real and tangible. But as long as you keep Jesus in this like category of an abstract thought, an idea, and an ethic, it is not personal. You do whatever you want. You do what you want with Jesus. But he is a person, not an idea. We see this in the call. Thirdly, we see that the call to follow Christ is expansive. It is expansive. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. These men were fishing in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee wasn't even a sea, it's a lake, right? And so they're just fishing in a lake, throwing out this net with weights on the edge, and they're just casting, trying to desperately just catch fish and make a living. There's nothing wrong with fishermen. That's awesome. That is a great vocation for us. But Jesus says, I have more for you. I have more for you. I'm offering you much more than what they are currently, what you are currently working for. Right now, Peter... You're a fisherman in Galilee. I will make you a fisherman, fisher of men in all of the nations. They may have been skilled. They were moderately successful, right? Even James and John, they were successful enough to, to have skilled and hired labor, right? So they were not like bottom of the rung workers, right? But there, even then, their horizons were small and their purpose was finite, had it not been for Christ, we would never have even known their names, right? Just think about that. If it wasn't for Jesus, we would not know John and James, sons of Zebedee, Simon, also known Peter, who had a brother named Ant. We wouldn't know nothing about them. They would have been just a blip in human history, right? A speck. But because Jesus called them and Jesus expanded their purpose, their meaning, their life, their identity, not to just be about their small little kingdom in Galilee, but to be members and servants in the kingdom of God. We know their names. We know their stories. Do you see that when Christ calls us to his kingdom, it is expansive. Peter became the first leader of the early church. John would become a bishop in Ephesus. Andrew became a missionary who went as far as to the, the, the borders of Russia. Jesus expands our identity, our calling, our purpose. One commentator writes, the call of Jesus was not to find fulfillment in what they were already doing, but to a radically new purpose in life, okay? I believe that that's important for all of us. Jesus isn't here just to pat you on the back and say, keep on living your life, appreciate you. He's not here to just affirm you in your pursuits and in your desires, he wants to give you a greater purpose, a higher calling. This calling is expansive. We are called into his everlasting kingdom. Lastly, the call to follow Christ, it is divisive and it's detaching. They left their nets. They left their jobs. They left their homes. They left their comforts. They were not poor, destitute men who had nothing to lose. You see, we always think, man, if you are like just 
just at the bottom of the rung and you are bankrupt and you have nothing, of course it makes sense to just go all out for Jesus. But for many of you, you have something to lose. And so it seems too costly. Brothers and sisters, these men had things to lose. They had homes, they had families, they had careers, and they went all in for Christ. They detached. They understood that to follow Christ, it was decisive. Why? Why did these men leave everything to follow Jesus? Because they believed he was the Messiah. They believed that he was the one that all of Israel was waiting for. They believed that he was the son of God. And and even in those two words, follow me, even in that one declaration, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand, there was an authority that they had never heard before and an authority that they had never experienced before. And so they left everything. They dropped everything and followed him. This leads us to our last point. How must we respond to the call? This call that is a call of grace, this call that is personal, this call that is expansive, this call that is even divisive and detaching. How must we respond? Now, friends, um, this passage makes me uncomfortable, okay? It makes so many of us uncomfortable, does it not? No one wants to quit our jobs, right? Unless you hate your job and you're in transition, but it's only because you want to get a better one, right? No one wants to sell their possessions. It's one thing to give your hand-me-downs to others. It's one thing to, to be charitable, but your prized possessions, to sell them and give them to the poor, as Jesus asked the rich young ruler, none of us want to do that, right? We're locked into 30-year mortgages, right? Five-year car payments, 10-year school loans. Oh, school loans we'd love to get rid of. Um, <laughs> We don't want to give up these things. We certainly don't want to leave our friends, our families, and follow Jesus. We all admire the disciples for what they did. I mean, just mad respect, right? We're like, man, Peter, Andrew, James, Paul, you guys are like gangsters, right? We respect them so much. We appreciate them. We are so grateful for their radical faith. But you and I, we don't believe Jesus expects us to do the same. We insist that he doesn't do, expect us to do the same. We literally hope to God that that isn't the case, that he wants us to quit our jobs, leave our friends and families, sell our possessions, and follow Jesus. And so rather than obey Jesus and the call for us to follow him, you know what we've all done? We've distilled the call. We filtered it out. We have reshaped it to fit our own preferences and make it more palatable, right? Something we can ingest, something we can live out and practice without feeling too guilty, but not letting it be too radical and costly, something like right in the middle, right? To quote Bonhoeffer once again, this is what he says. If we would follow Jesus, we must take certain definite steps. The first steps, which follow the call, it cuts the disciple off from his previous experience. As long as Peter stays at his nets, faith is not possible. They could have good jobs and families and even enjoy enjoy religious experiences. But the only way to believe in God is to follow his incarnate son. Let me say that again. The only way to truly believe in God 
is to follow his incarnate son. The road to faith passes through obedience to the call of Jesus. The road to faith passes through obedience to the call. Brothers and sisters, there is no other path of discipleship. We are called to repent and believe. This means that we are called to exercise both faith and obedience, okay? Faith is necessary. Obedience is necessary. In reality, in reality, you cannot have one without the other. Let me give you an example. Imagine you were diagnosed with a terminal illness, okay, terminal illness, but you found a top specialist, the finest in the world who knows your disease, and you see her, And she says, there is no doubt you have this illness. I've seen it a thousand times. I've dealt with thousands of patients. And you know what? You're going to die. I'm so sorry. You are going to die. But there is good news. There's a cure. There is only one cure to this disease. But everyone who has taken this medicine has survived, 100% survival rate. And suddenly you're like, you are relieved, right? You went from the worst news possible to the best news possible. You even thank the doctor and you praise her for being so wonderful, for making time for you. You are grateful. And then you walk out the door and she says, wait, 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 don't you, don't you want your prescription? Don't you want the medicine? And then you say, no, thanks. I don't like pills. I need something that works better for me. Puzzled, she asked, didn't you hear what I just said? Do you not believe me? You are going to die, but if you take this medicine, you will surely live. And you say, doctor, I know, I believe you. You are the expert. I completely, 100% know you're right. I believe you. Then why don't you wanna take the medicine? I've got my reasons. Do you wanna live? Yes. I'm just not going to take the pills. I'm going to try a couple other things. Maybe go vegan. Maybe, you know, exercise more, sleep better. You know, um, Korean roots, hanyak, you know, whatever it might be. That's an example of somebody claiming to have faith and belief, but refusing to obey. Friends, can we think of any examples in real life where there is knowledge, Faith, trust, and belief divorced from action, obedience, and works. I can't think of any. If I see a car coming my way, I see it, I believe, and I'm like, if I don't move, I'm going to get in trouble. I move. Those things are connected. Those things are surely connected. In so many aspects of our lives, we see the necessary connection between faith and obedience. If we believe something, then our actions correspond to that belief. The great danger in Christianity, the insanity of of modern Christians today, like you and I, is that we have convinced ourselves that when it comes to Jesus and discipleship, we can kind of sift through and separate and recategorize faith and obedience. And I believe I know how we got to this dangerous place. Actually, Bonhoeffer tells us and I want to share that with you. How did we get to this place where even though the rest of our lives, we know faith and work, faith and obedience and action, all of those things are connected, but when it comes to the gospel and discipleship, we can like disconnect them. How did we do this? This is what Bonhoeffer says. Two propositions are equally true. 
Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. There is an essential unity between faith and obedience. In justification, and that's a declaration of forgiveness and righteousness, okay? In justification, there is theological distinction. But it goes awry when we try to make a chronological, time-based, right, distinction between faith and obedience and make obedience subsequent to faith. That means obedience that comes later, after faith. Because then the practical question arises, when must obedience begin? For faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. Brothers and sisters, I think that this might be the most important quote and relevant quote on faith and obedience I have ever read. Okay. It is true. It is absolutely true that there's a theological distinction between faith and obedience. How are you and I declared righteous and forgiven in Jesus Christ? Faith alone, sola fide, right? We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. So in doctrine and in theology, it is absolutely important that we separate faith from works. We are not justified by works. We are not accepted and approved based on our works or our performance or even our obedience. We don't obey our way into the kingdom of God. No. It is purely a gift. The call is a gift. Our salvation is a gift. This is undeniable and echoed throughout the scriptures. But you know what the Bible doesn't teach? The Bible does not teach a chronological distinction between faith and obedience. The idea that we have to believe first and then obey later, okay? We believe first. We, we believe with our hearts and our minds first. And that's the most important thing. And then later, as we kind of mature and as we grow and as we are mentored and as we are discipled, then we start to obey. But Bonhoeffer says, when, when will you then obey? When must we obey if we recategorize faith and obedience? The idea that we can have faith apart from obedience, the Bible doesn't teach that. This is a lie we all tell ourselves. We tell ourselves that lie when obeying is inconvenient, when it's costly. We tell ourselves that lie when we're lazy, right? We, don't, we just don't have the energy. We don't have the mind space. We don't have the bandwidth or the will or desire to obey. And so we're like, it's okay. Obedience is not necessary. This is a lie we tell ourselves, that it is more important for us to believe in our hearts and minds than obey with our hands and feet. We think we can separate faith from obedience, just like a child separates meat from vegetables, right? But only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. Quick test. Can you name one saint in the scriptures who didn't live like this? One person in the household of God that didn't live a life of faith and obedience. They all lived out both. Can you think of a hero in the hall of faith reading through Hebrews 11? Can you think of one person who had immense faith but just refused to obey, who didn't obey? 
You cannot think of a single person. So question, brother or sister, what makes you think it is safe for you to live like that? If none of the saints of scripture divorced obedience from faith, what makes us think that we can? What makes us think it is safe to do so or appropriate to do so? In fact, the Bible gives us plenty of examples of people who tried to delay obedience. People who said, I believe in you, Jesus. Let me just do a couple things and then I will follow. I believe you say all that you are. Let me just handle a couple of affairs, take care of myself and my family and deal with a couple of things and then I will be wholly devoted. Just like those people who said, when I, when I retire, I'm going to become a missionary. I'm like, oh yeah, if you get there, if you retire. In Luke chapter nine, Jesus is teaching on discipleship. And we have a series of encounters of people who are considering the call. And I believe that today, there might be some of you who are considering the call to discipleship. This is what Luke writes. To another, this is Jesus. He said, follow me. But this man said, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. He didn't say, no, I don't believe in you. He didn't say, no, I don't want to follow you. He says, let me first bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. This person wanted to enlist, right? Enlist along with the disciples. He said, just let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What is Jesus' point? Is it because he's like, no, you can't even say goodbye? No, he's, he's not being harsh like that. He's simply telling us that faith and obedience, they are necessarily connected. There is no chronological distinction. Brother and sister, is that the story of your life right now? You're telling yourself, one day I will start reading the Bible. One day I will start stewarding over my time, treasures, and talents. One day I will forgive my friend or forgive my neighbor or forgive my family member for the hurt that they have caused me. One day I will start praying. One day I will go on a mission trip. One... Why? Why do we talk like that? Why do we live like this? Because if we understood who Jesus truly was, if we understood his authority, his majesty, his beauty, and the urgency of his kingdom, we wouldn't negotiate with him. We wouldn't delay our obedience. We would obey in the same breath, in the same moment that we believe. Would you consider Christ? Would you examine your life? Would you follow after him? He is worthy. He is worthy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, you know our hearts. You see us. And I am amazed and I'm so grateful that you call us. None of us here deserve to be called. None of us have earned it. None of us have merited it. But Lord, you have invited us to trust in you, to believe on you and follow after you. I pray right now 
that with the same voice and with the same authority that was issued to Peter and Andrew, James and John, by your word and Holy Spirit, would you call some of my brothers and sisters right now to follow you, to be detached from the things of this world, to be detached from their vain and small and temporary kingdoms and to attach themselves to your kingdom, to your lordship, to your gospel. And in doing so, Lord, Father, I pray that you would help us to see that that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, that God, you are not a God who wants to strip us and empty us and rob us of good things. Lord, you are a God You are a God who wants to show us, Lord, life to the fullest, the truth of how you have created us to live. Help us to trust you. Help us to step out in faith. Give us courage to to leave the comfort of our own little nets and to follow you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.